Today's teaching text is from the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. It's chapter 5, verses 8 through 20. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father of everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Tom. Well, in the beginning, there was no shame. Let that uh, sink in for a moment. In the beginning, there was no shame. The story that's been passed down for thousands of years and that those who claim Christ claim as their story says this about the first humans in Genesis 2, verse 25. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. In the beginning, there was no shame. They knew they were loved by each other and by God, They knew that deep down in their bones, they were worthy of love. They had nothing to hide. And so they shared their lives with each other. There was connection and belonging and intimacy. In the beginning, there was no shame. Can you imagine a world like that? The past couple days, we've been reading uh, a Halloween book to our son called Vlad the Fabulous Vampire. (laughs) And um, it's a great book. There's a series of other creatures who all um, have great lessons in them. But Vlad is a vampire with the misfortune of having rosy cheeks that gasp, make him look abysmally alive. 
You wouldn't want to look alive, right? Everyone else in his family and in his community, his friends, they're all vampires who are gray-faced, right? Their cheeks are gray, no color. And Vlad doesn't want anybody to know that he's different. In fact, there's one night where Vlad works up the courage. He's going to tell his friend Shelly, this little girl vampire, about his cheeks. And they're sitting there, and he says, Shelly, do you think, what would you say if, he's kind of pausing, and Shelly says, yes, go on. But Vlad tragically can't find the words, and he ends up saying, well, how many stars do you think are in the sky, or something like that. He changes the subject. And then on the next page, it says, quote, He worried his friends would stop liking him if they discovered who he really was. He doesn't want him to see his cheeks. Now, Vlad, it also says, has a passion for fashion. And so he starts creating these outfits um, in all black, traditional vampire garb that cover his cheeks. You know, they have like a very high neckline that covers that, or he wears like a veil that covers it, and he has all these great uh, fashion ideas so that no one will see his rosy cheeks, but he keeps sort of tripping on things, and then his outfit, you know, reveals his cheek, or bumping into people, and, and people keep almost seeing, and it causes so much fear in him that Vlad decides he's just going to go and live off in seclusion, Uh, He can't bear the thought of someone finding out about his cheeks. Well, as he's getting ready to do this, he's walking off into the woods, and his friend Shelly, who always wears a hat, something, I forget what, had bumped her hat off to reveal this massive amount of curly pink hair. So Vlad runs into Shelly and sees her hair, and she goes... Oh no, please don't tell anyone. So she has this secret of color that she doesn't want anyone to know. Well, Vlad then reveals his cheeks and they bond over this aspect of color in their life. And together they then go and explore and figure out that there's a whole world that is full of color. And Vlad, with his passion for fashion, begins to explore in other fabric colors than just black. Um, You can see his cape starts to incorporate some pink, even. Vlad, in this little kid's book, uh, becomes fully alive. Now, not literally, because he's a vampire, but metaphorically... He's fully alive. He's embracing this little part of who he is, which allows him to embrace others, his friend Shelley, and together they begin to embrace and appreciate this beautiful world that they're discovering. Uh, A different author than the one who wrote this wrote something uh, in the second century. So a few thousand years ago, during this time of brutal church persecution. The church father, St. Irenaeus, says this, the glory of God is man, man and woman, humanity, man fully alive. 
And so here's what I want you to hear this morning. God wants you to be fully alive. In contrast, sin and shame wants to keep you from the full life that God offers. Shame wants to keep you in the dark. Shame wants to keep you asleep. Shame wants to keep you unalert and unaware, dulled to the full life of God and God's good world. And we see that in our text with these three contrasts that Paul uses. Darkness and light, being asleep versus being awake, and this contrast of wine and the spirit. Wine and the spirit. And that first contrast is the most primal of them all. It's in every film that depicts good versus evil. It's darkness and light. Light and darkness, right? And it's on even the first page of Scripture. In the beginning, God creates light out of chaos and darkness. And if you read the Gospel of John or any of St. John's epistles, there's all this theme of light. God being light. Well, Paul says, it was just read, but let's read it again. Beginning in verse 8, he says, For you were once darkness. Not even in darkness. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out, the word there for find out is that word for discern. Discern, try to discern what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. Darkness is a place to hide, it's a place of hiding. And hiding is something that we've done since the beginning of time. Since the beginning of time. In the beginning was no shame. Remember, in Genesis 2.25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Unfortunately, it didn't last very long. A few verses later, Genesis 3, beginning in verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Right away, they're hiding what makes them different from one another. They're hiding those parts of themselves right away. Shame came on the scene real quick. And it struck at the most vulnerable places and divided them like that. They made coverings for themselves. Verse 8 says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But 
the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? When we feel the impulse to hide who we really are, God is always calling out for us. God is always moving towards us. God is always at work wanting to reconcile the relationship, if we would let him. They hid, and God calls out. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And in verse 10, man answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. In other words, I was vulnerable. I was exposed. I thought I'd be seen for who I really am. So I hid. Hiding in the darkness is a part of the human condition. Today we call it shame. You know, there are some who think that, yes, the first humans, it was disobedient to take the fruit. But what really broke God's heart was the hiding, the lying, the covering in their response. The severing of the relationship between one another and between God and humans. Today we call it shame. Brene Brown uh, writes powerfully about shame, which is why her TED Talk has been listened to by however many millions of people, and her books are New York Times bestsellers. She does a great job at elucidating, at explaining, at highlighting what's going on with shame. And she names three truths about shame that are important for us. One is that uh, we all have it. Shame is universal. It's one of the most, she says, primitive emotions we experience. And then she says this, if you're like, I don't have shame, lest you think higher of yourself than you should, she says, the only people who don't experience it are the ones who lack the capacity for empathy and human connection. Uh-oh. She says, we all experience it. That's number one. The second, she says, we're all afraid to talk about it. Sometimes we feel shame just for hearing the word shame. And that makes it tricky. She says, but we're getting better. We're getting better. We're talking about it more. And then the third truth is that the less we talk about it, the more control it has over us. Hence its connection with darkness. Here's her definition of shame. I think it's up there on the screen. Shame is the immensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love, belonging, and connection. Shame, she says, thrives on secrecy, silence, and judgment. In other words, it's one of those things that only grows in the darkness. The antidote, she says, is empathy, is connection with someone else where honesty can thrive. Now, in Vlad, the fabulous vampire, he was able to overcome shame because of his connection with his friend Shelley. Right? The two of them found a place where they could be honest. They saw each other as they really were, with their rosy cheeks and pink hair. 
and they were able to move towards each other in empathy. In empathy. You might say they were exposed by the light, as Paul says. And what happens when you're exposed by the light, Paul says, is you become light. You help to bring others out of darkness. And Paul's metaphor isn't about, you know, sort of coercively un- or, yeah, coercively uncovering other people's sins who are trying to hide so that you can heap more shame on them. Like, I'm a flashlight. I see what you did. You did that? Gross! Shame, shame, shame. It rather is an invitation into the light of Christ. Where you are already known and loved and found to be enough. And when you live into that freedom, your shame dissipates. You're able then to have empathy and compassion on others. Which, guess what? Actually invites them out of shame and into light. In the light of Christ, you become a light. See, God wants you to be fully alive. But sin and shame wants to keep you from the full life that God offers. Wants to keep you in the dark. Wants to keep you asleep. It wants to keep you unalert, unaware, dull to God and God's good world. So Paul continues in the second contrast of being awake and asleep, and he quotes this, what a lot of scholars think is perhaps this ancient hymn. It's not a quote from the Old Testament. He says in verse 14, This is why it's said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So be very careful then. Be very alert how you live, not as unwise, but as wise making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. When folks struggle with with, uh, deep shame, when we struggle with deep shame, we might be tempted to fall asleep to what's really going on in ourselves and in God's world. Because it might just feel too heavy to bear. So we try to sort of check out. And we all have different ways of doing it. You know, some seem more innocent than others, but we all have different ways. Shopping, workaholism, keeping ourselves and our kids busy because, you know, those two sports aren't enough. They need to do that third and fourth and fifth sport or join that team and that team and that team, which keeps them busy and it keeps us busy, taking them to all the things And then, of course, there are the more obvious ones, different drugs, different drinks that quite literally numb us. The list goes on, and I like to think of these as sort of sleep aids that don't actually offer the rest that we need. Um, They're like taking unhealthy amounts of Ambien. Ambien is that sleep drug that has some really absurd side effects. I don't know if any of you take it. I hope your doctor is monitoring it if you do. But you can find all these testimonies online of folks who've taken it. And I got to read one for you, okay? This is from Stacy C. 
She says, I was on Ambien for about two years. After a couple months, I started realizing I was doing weird stuff after I took it that I didn't remember. Nothing serious that I knew of, but I would wake up with food all over my bed, or there would be posts I made online that I had no recollection of. I didn't think it was that big of a deal, so I stayed on it. One night, toward the end of my time on Ambien, I woke up in my car. I was in my pajamas, driving and crying. I knew where I was, but I didn't know how I got there. And I didn't know why I was crying either. I pulled into a parking lot and waited until I was done crying for no apparent reason, and then I just drove back home. It had to have been like 3 o'clock in the morning. Get this, she says. I did continue to take Ambien for a little bit after that incident because my insomnia was really bad, and I didn't know what else would work. When I saw a new doctor, I told him about it, and he took me off it immediately, saying no good can come from that drug. No good could come from that drug. That's what Paul is telling us. He's saying, don't try to make yourself further asleep. I mean, not literally. Paul had no idea about Ambien. He's not, if you do take it and it's helpful to you, this is not about that. Paul is saying, don't make yourself further asleep, right? Wake up to the reality that the resurrected and risen Christ shines on you. That's what the song he quotes says. Don't walk around like a zombie when God's invitation is to life in the full. Jesus' promise of abundant life. The kind of life that you are awake to. You know, one of the biggest lies we can believe is that life with God is boring. It's the idea that being religious, being Christian, makes you dull. And, you know, Christianity is primarily a list of rules of what you can't do so that your life is less fun these days so that you get bigger mansions in later days. Something like that. Christianity just sucks all the fun and joy and spontaneity out of life. Nope. Christianity... A relationship with Jesus Christ is about being awake and aware to God and God's world. And so, those who do life with Christ actually experience the life that is really life. 3D. Full color life. Abundant life. Resurrection life, life without hiding or avoiding or escaping or numbing out, life that is really life. Paul highlights this by contrasting darkness with light and with being asleep and being awake. And the final way that Paul contrasts this is with wine and the spirit. He says in verse 18, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Any, um, what I think, honest reading of the Bible will, will realize that nowhere in Scripture is alcohol actually flatline condemned. 
Now, there are extremely valid reasons to abstain from it, not least of them being our culture's abuse of it, but we cannot make the claim with integrity that Scripture prohibits it entirely. That's left to individual communities to discern God's best for them. But what we can see from Scripture is that drunkenness is universally condemned. Um, in Proverbs, it's very interesting, Proverbs 31, which, you know, we like to have speak to superwoman. Uh, before that, it speaks to, to kings and rulers. And it, it prohibits them, asks them to abstain from wine and strong drink, lest they forget their responsibilities, act unjustly, and cease to care for the poverty-stricken and marginalized of their communities. They fall asleep to the needs of others when their role is to care for them. That's Proverbs 31, verses 4 through 5 and 8 through 9. And um, you can see the connection between drinking, drunkenness, and sort of zoning out from life. I want to read this. This, is, this comes from uh, Healthline, and, the, and they've proposed these sort of seven uh, stages of alcohol intoxication. Okay? Um, there are others who speak about this as well, but it's, it's very interesting. Stage one, sobriety or very low-level intoxication. Um, person is sober. All right, I won't go into it too much. Stage two, they call euphoria. Uh, They said this is after maybe two or three drinks as a man or one or two as a woman in an hour. They call this the tipsy stage. You might feel more confident and chatty. You might have a slower reaction time and lowered inhibitions. So already, even in the stage of euphoria, there's a bit less awareness to what's going on. Stage three, they call excitement. Here they say you might become emotionally unstable Get easily excited or saddened. You might lose your coordination and have trouble making judgment calls and remembering things. You might have blurry vision and lose your balance. You may also feel tired or drowsy. They said, at this stage, you are drunk. That's the excitement stage, and it sounds like that. Stage four, confusion. You might have emotional outbursts and a major loss of coordination. It might be hard to stand and walk. You may be very confused about what's going on. You might black out without losing consciousness and fade in and out of consciousness. You may not be able to feel pain. Okay, that's stage four. There's still five and six and seven. Stage five they call stupor. Um, At this stage, you will no longer respond to what's happening around you. You won't be able to stand or walk. You may also pass out or lose control. You may have seizures, blue-tinged, or pale skin. Stage six is coma. (coughs) Stage seven is death. They said that excessive alcohol use causes approximately 88,000 deaths annually, according to the CDC. And what I just want to ask is, does this sound like being fully alive? But for so many people in our country, the shame, the guilt is so inhibiting 
that the feel, the need for alcohol feels like there's no other way for me to. You hear people say, I feel like I can be myself more. Or I feel like I have less inhibitions. I feel like I can actually be honest or connect with people. And that's really sad. The unfortunate reality is that many in our world turn to alcohol to lower the volume on those shameful voices. And it's their best chance at freedom, they feel. Paul longs for these people to meet the Spirit of God. He says in verse 18, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And at first glance, this might seem like a strange, you know, it's kind of like obvious, yeah, light and dark. We see how those go together, asleep and awake, sure. But what does this category of drunkenness, either on wine, he says, or, or the spirit, why are those connected? And there's, there's a handful of reasons. One most immediate to their context was uh, Dionysius, who was the, the, the demigod of, of wine, um, in their day and age, and he would have had the, the the way you would worship him is with wine, and you would kind of have these 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 parties, and that would be worshipful to drink to the point of of stupor. Um, and so, in one simple way, Paul's saying that's not what worship ought to look like for us. Um, we have the Spirit, but then also there's a couple stories in uh, the scriptures that speak to this as well. One that's really powerful is in 1 Samuel 1. There's a story about a woman named Hannah who goes on to birth uh, Samuel, who becomes the prophet who chooses, or David, uh, who becomes the king of Israel, who is then a predecessor for Christ, and on and on and on. But... In this story about Hannah, she she wants a child, and she is unable to conceive. And her husband actually has another wife as well, who is able to conceive, who just kind of rubs it in Hannah's face all the time. And she feels um, terrible. And she ends up taking that pain to prayer. And so in 1 Samuel 1, verse 10, it says, In her deep anguish... Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. She had all the reason to sort of wallow in shame or to sort of pacify her pain and numb out on life, but she brings all of it to God. And the scriptures continue to tell the story, saying in verse 12, as she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli, the priest, observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips are moving, but her voice is not heard. And so Eli thinks she's drunk. And he says to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. I can't imagine that, being in this place of your deepest pain, praying in the spirit, and the priest, the, the, the person meant to oversee all the prayer in the community right there, calls you out and says you're drunk, and stop it, knock it off. That had to cut deep. 
But she responds back to him. She says, not so, my Lord. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. She corrects him, the priest. And then he goes on to bless her and say, may God give you what you're praying for. But her profound prayer in the spirit was perceived by the priest to be drunkenness. You see why Paul might be getting into this contrast here. It was the opposite, of course. Rather than something numbing out to all the pain, she was deeply in touch with the deepest places of her soul, with that longing before God, and she brought it to him as an offering, pouring it out to him, she says. In another story, much later in Acts 2, you may know this one as well. The Holy Spirit falls powerfully to give birth to the church. And folks are speaking in other languages. uh, And the onlookers are like, this is insane. These people are drunk. And they respond back saying, it's only nine in the morning. Uh, We're not. (laughs) But the idea is that this spirit that comes upon us, whether it puts us deeply in touch with our own pain and grief, or connects us in ways that don't make sense to the world. This time there were folks from other nations being connected. It might appear like drunkenness. But really, it's life. Life to the full. Life in excess. In excess. The Spirit gives life. God wants you to be fully alive. Sin and shame wants to keep you from the full life that God offers. Shame wants to keep you in the dark. It wants to keep you asleep. It wants to keep you unalert, unaware, dull to God and God's good world. Finally, Paul says in verses 19 and 20, Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's something about singing and gratitude that both can be expressions of full life and help form in us full life. They're practices that awaken us. When we might choose to be asleep, these practices awaken us to God and his good world. It's very hard to sing sincerely from your heart when shame is weighing you down. When the primary voice you hear is that voice of the accuser, the evil one, or that voice of yourself saying, I am wrong, or I am bad, or I am a failure. Singing will not naturally flow from your lips, at least not songs of praise, And Paul invites us into that, but you've got to come into the light first. 
the light that says those are lies. Those are not truths about you. Now, Brene Brown does a great job at differentiating between sin and guilt. And guilt would say, I have done bad. Shame says, I am bad. That's what she says. Guilt would, might say, I have wronged someone. Shame says, I am wrong. You see the difference. And so, guilt can be helpful sometimes. It can help us to seek forgiveness in our life, um, to take accountability for our action, to live in line with reality. But shame simply hampers us down. It's also very hard to give genuine gratitude if your life is weighed down with shame. In fact, if your life is already weighed down with shame and someone tells you, be grateful, look at everything that's good in the world, that just creates what's called gratitude shame, another layer of shame. And so really, we've got to come into the light and love of Christ, which allows us to be freed from that shame. Now, I'm not naive enough to think that if you're dealing uh, with deep, deep shame, that me simply saying these words will absolve it and you're good to go. So I'm extremely grateful to have uh, Dr. Grace with us today, who you can get a 15-minute free consultation with, by the way. Um, Say hi to her after service. Even if you uh, have no desire to seek out counseling, just to be a friendly face. Say hi to her. Um, But this stuff, dealing with shame, this is deep, often long work in our lives. But singing and thanksgiving will be two outcomes of it and two practices that help facilitate it. So, let's be still for just a moment. I want to just ask some questions as I close. Quite simply, you may want to ask yourself or God this question. You might want to ask it now. You might want to write it down to ask later. God, where have I chosen darkness over light? What what places in my life are off limits to you and your love? What don't I want you, God, to see? What don't I want others to see? Lord, if there's places I'm hiding, is shame still operating in my life. Maybe I thought I dealt with it already. Maybe I thought, that's such a small thing, I've, I've moved on. But then, when I really look at it, I realize I'm still hiding. What's going on there? God, where am I trying to fall asleep instead of stay awake to what's going on within me and in the world?